Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 27th of April, Justin Moat taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Justin gives us an overview of the book of Acts and the epistles. Justin is the former head of the Northwest Partnership Ministry Trainee Course and a regular speaker on various theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. Andy, thanks so much. Thank you. Um, this is the second time I've been to your School of uh, Theology. So, Andy, thank you so much. It can't have been so bad the first time that you've invited me back, or it was so bad that you think it can only get better uh, this time. Whichever that is, it's a great joy to be with you uh, on this uh, Saturday morning. Good. Well, Andy's asked me to spend the first bit of our time this morning thinking about... Um, uh, Uh, the book of Acts, we're going to think about the age in which you and I live. What time do you think it is? Well, easy. It's 20 past nine. Uh, What time is it? Well, it's Saturday. But let's ask it in a bigger kind of way. What age do you think you live in? Well, the New Testament's view is that you and I live in what's called the last times. We live the end of time. When Jesus dies on the cross, that is not the end. Hooray. I hope you noticed that at Easter. And then you got to Easter Sunday, did you? And you realised that the cross is not the end. But it is still not the end. Because you and I are still here this morning. And so we live in a unique era which is common to the book of Acts and all the epistles in the New Testament. We live in what I'm going to call the overlap of the eras. When when Jesus died and rose again, and the spirit at the beginning of Acts, which we'll see in a moment, comes, we enter into the last era of human history. Things are different to how they've been since Genesis chapter 3. Something marvellous happens when Jesus arrives on the stage. But we still live with all the impacts of what happened back in Genesis chapter 3. So, you and I do not yet live in glory. As nice as Manchester is, this is not glory. And and without the laughter, you and I know that, don't we? Because you and I know that we still live in a world that suffers all the impacts of what happened when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and God brought judgment on the world. We still live with all the impacts of Genesis chapter 3. Is that not the case? We still suffer. We still get sick. We still live in a world that has all kinds of natural disasters. We still live in a world where there's death. So, uh, on Thursday this coming week, 
Uh, Joe, my wife and I, we're going to a funeral. Her aunt died. She got to 94, that's pretty decent. 94, but she's died. We live in a world of death. We live in a world of sickness. We live in a world of suffering. In other words, we live in an age where we still experience all the impacts of Genesis 3, what happened back in the garden. But something brilliant has broken in. Jesus has come. And so we now live in what I'm going to call the overlap of two eras. We're still in the old world, but something's broken into our world, the coming of Jesus. But we're not yet in the new world, the new creation, glory. We're living in this overlap of the eras. And that, that overlap of the eras is the age in which you and I live, and it's the age in which ever since the coming of the Spirit at the beginning of Acts chapter 2 is the age which the rest of the New Testament knows all about. So the book of Acts and the epistles that we're going to think about now are all dealing with the era that you and I live in. And that makes those books really, really relevant to us. Because we can read them, and we can read what they say, and they apply to people who live in the same era that you and I live in. Now, it's a fair question to ask, and we're on the handout now, a fair question to ask, why is there this overlap of the two eras? Why, why when Jesus came, and he died on the cross, and he rose again, why didn't it all just end then. And the answer is spelt out in two passages we're going to look very briefly at before we get to the book of Acts. I wonder whether you'd turn to Matthew chapter 13 uh, with me. Matthew chapter 13. In this uh, chapter, Matthew... I wonder whether you know, Matthew puts all the teaching material of Jesus together in five sections in Matthew's Gospel. So unlike any of the other Gospels, Matthew puts all the teaching of Jesus together. In, so the Sermon on the Mount is the most famous, Matthew chapters 5 to 7, Matthew chapter 10 is the second one, Matthew chapter 13 is the third. And in Matthew chapter 13, there are eight little parables that Matthew uniquely collects to get together. In Mark's Gospel or Luke's Gospel, you'll find them dotted through uh, the Gospel. But in Matthew, they're all put together. And in Matthew chapter 13, the uh, parable of the weeds Jesus teaches in verses 24 to 30. And then I wonder whether you can notice that uh, it then gets explained in verses 36 to 43. And what Jesus does is explains our era. He explains the age in which we live. Let me read the parable. You probably know it. Jesus told them another parable. This is verse 24. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But whilst everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed uh, heads, then the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, 
Didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot some of the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. Now, here's the explanation. It comes in verse 36. So Jesus leaves the crowd and he explains to the disciples. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and, the we- and he- they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all that does evil. I wonder whether you can see what Jesus is saying. Our age, that is until the last day, our age is where weeds and wheat coexist in the world. That is where God's people and those who are not God's people coexist in this world. Now, why do you think that is the case? Well, in the middle, between the parable and its explanation, I wonder whether you can see there are two other little parables that Jesus teaches, and they are the clue as to what's going on in our era, in our age. So verse 31, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all our seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can come and perch in its branches. Can you see? Our age is an age where the kingdom is going to grow from something very small to something very big. That's what's going on in our era. How does it happen? Look at the next parable. Again, one of the ones sandwiched between the parable of the weeds and uh, the weeds and its explanation. He told them another parable, this is verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now, I'm not a great baker. I like Mary Berry. And I have watched some of the great British bake-off, largely because my daughter likes it, and you know, we, we sit and watch it together. I can't bear the presenters, but anyway. <laughs> but what I have learnt is that if bread is going to become, other than flatbread, you need to put yeast in it. The yeast needs to be in the dough. And as the yeast is in the dough, so then the dough grows. What's going on in our era? What's going on in our age? Well, in the first little parable, it is the kingdom is going to grow from something very small to something very big. But how's it going to grow? by the yeast, that is by God's people, remaining in the world. That's how it's going to happen. That's what's going on in our era. 
Over the last 2,000 years, what has God done? He has taken a group, which we'll see in a moment, he's taken a group of 11 and some others, and he's grown from that small number, like a little mustard seed, he's grown that from something tiny into something that has been enormous. And you and I know that. A very good friend of mine, um, uh, Jonathan, uh, his dad was a missionary in China. And uh, he and all the other missionaries in China were thrown out in 1953. And do you know what they all did? They were missionaries. So they went to other places as missionaries. Some of them went to Indonesia. And in Indonesia, in the late 50s and early 60s, they saw the largest ever Islamic conversion rate. There's a huge church in Indonesia. And you know what? They threw them all out of China. And China has grown to have the largest Christian population of any country in the world. (laughs) Mao thought he could extinguish Christianity. What happened? The kingdom grew. You see, it starts very small. But what's happened is the kingdom has grown. But how does it grow? By God's people staying in the world. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter uh, 3. And here in an epistle you get it explained by uh, Peter. What on earth is going on in our world? Now, Peter's writing here probably right at the end of the New Testament letters. And it's probable that Peter's writing around AD 60 or 70, somewhere around there, about maybe 40 years after Jesus has died and rose again. And he's answering a question. Look at verse 3 with me. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, that's our era, scoffers will come. Well, what do scoffers do? They'll come scoffing, following their own evil desires, and they will say, where is this coming, he promised? (laughs) It's been 40 years, and he's not come again. 40 years, well, now it's 2,000 years. Where is this coming? Well, it's not because God is slow. Look at how Peter explains it in verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. Ah, So it's actually only been a couple of days. That's not that long, is it, really? A thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. The Lord has said Jesus will return. But he's not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why do you think we've lived in our era for 2,000 years? The reason is because God is patient and he's giving people time. Now, I became a Christian on March the 2nd, 1976. 
That's before Andy was born, probably. Long time before. <laughs> March. Who was alive on March the 2nd, 1976? Yeah, well, us coffin dodgers. We, 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 that's what my daughter calls me now. She said, coffin dodger. So, sometimes she calls me an oxygen thief, which I think is even ruder. But anyway, there you go. That's the trouble of having kind of children in their 20s. Um, I became a Christian on March the 2nd, 1976. Can I tell you, I am so grateful that Jesus didn't return on March the 1st, 1976. Because if he had, I'd be in hell. Now, I don't know when you became a Christian... But aren't you glad he waited long enough for you? And that means that every day that exists, so if there's another day tomorrow, do you know why? Because God's being patient. And he's giving other people time to turn to him. And there'll be people tomorrow, if Jesus hasn't come back, there'll be people tomorrow who will be converted tomorrow. And we'll spend all of eternity grateful to God that he waited long enough for them. Aren't you glad? Now that is the explanation of our time. Now that's a long introduction to get to what the book of Acts and and the epistles are doing. They're all written into that era, the era where God is patient So turn with me to the book of Acts. Sorry, we are there now. (laughs) Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. It's a significant little verse. In my former book, Theophilus, what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that the man who's writing has already written a book before. In other words, the book of Acts is volume two. Luke has written uh, volume one, and we call it Luke. And we call the book Acts, well, that's a strange title. It came into being in the early church calling it Acts. But my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus, can you see how it's translated, all that Jesus began to do. So sometimes we call this book the Acts of the Apostles. But I suspect that's not the best title we could call it. Because I think chapter 1 verse 1 means we probably should call this book The Acts of Jesus Continued. Because book 1, Luke, is what Jesus began to do. And here is what Jesus continues to do. Yes, he does do, of course, through the apostles, uh, as we'll see. But the book of Acts is fundamentally still a continuation of what Jesus is doing. There are loads of uh, links between Acts and the book of Luke, uh, and we won't spend any time uh, doing that. But if you want to, you could read Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1, and you'd find at least 10 similarities of overlap that are connecting the two books together so that you do read the book of Acts as the follow-on from the book of Luke. The book of Luke is written around a journey. 
So Luke's gospel, you may know, begins with, um, well, Nazareth. And then the birth in Bethlehem. And a journey that starts in Acts, uh, Luke chapter 9, where Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, verse 52, sets his face to go to Jerusalem. So the book of Luke really is a journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem. And the book of uh, Acts, so Luke is Nazareth, Jerusalem. Acts is, well, it starts in Jerusalem and it's going to end in Rome. So the book of Acts is the story of how the gospel is going to move from Jerusalem to Rome. And once we've got to Rome which is the capital of the world at that time, we've really got to the ends of the earth. Once you've got to Rome, the gospel then will spread and even come to England. But the book of Acts is fundamentally more than just a geography lesson. It's more than just telling you that the gospel's going to move from Jerusalem, which is where it starts, to Rome, which is where Paul will end up at the end of the book. It is geographically what's going to happen, but it's more important than that. It's theologically what's going to happen. So uh, more than give you a geography lesson this morning, which would be interesting, I want to give you a theology lesson. Okay? So let's, let's, let's dive in and we're going to see how the book of Acts works. You still awake? Great. The disciples are still clueless after the resurrection. So they say to Jesus when they meet with him in chapter 1 verse 6, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still thinking that Israel is at the centre of everything. Jesus says to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority. And here's now the key verse of the book of Acts. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's what the book of Acts is really all about. So, we're going to see in chapter 2 that the Spirit comes upon them. They receive power. That they are then witnesses in Jerusalem. And Acts chapters 1 to 7 is all about the gospel in Jerusalem. Acts chapters 8 and 9 is then the gospel moving to Judea and Samaria, and after chapter 9, through the rest of the book, is the gospel on a number of missionary journeys moving to Rome, to the ends of the earth. So Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is geographically what's going to happen, and it's theologically what's going to happen too. You You will receive power. Now, it's important to know that the rest of Acts chapter 1 is the replacement of Judas with Matthias as a new witness. 
It's important to know that the idea in chapter 1, verse 8, witnesses that that is not about you and me. Now, we often use the language a bit sloppily. So we talk about us being witnesses, but you're not. Not like Matthias was, not like the 11 were, because you weren't there, were you? You'd have to be very old. We're not witnesses. Well, we're not witnesses in the same way they were witnesses. You see, when they come to replace Judas with Matthias, notice chapter 1, verse 21, it is necessary to choose one of them who has been with us the whole time. They want a real witness, someone who saw with their eyes, who heard with their ears, who touched with their hands. That's the witness. You and I are witnesses to what they witnessed. Does that make sense? So, yes, we do. Don't mishear me. I'm not, we do witness to our friends, yes. But we don't make up the material. We only witness what they witnessed. They are the ones who saw and heard and touched. The uh, Apostle John makes that at the very beginning of his first letter. We saw with our eyes, we heard with our ears, we touched with our hands. We were the witnesses. And what we now do is witness to what they witnessed. Yes, but not in the same way that they do. So, so anything that you see and you experience, which is, will be real for you, is, is not what fundamentally you're going to witness to people for them to be saved. You want to witness to what they witnessed, which was uh, the life, birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus. That's what, that's what we witnessed to. In fact, it's a, such a good Good question. Why don't we just dip in to the beginning of 1 John and we'll, we'll see exactly that. Just turn with me to 1 John. Are we allowed to go off piste? Yeah. <laughs> turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. And just listen to how John puts it. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. You see the ideas there? See, hear, touch. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. That's what, they've witnessed. That's what they're witnessing to, what they saw, heard, and touched. The life appeared. We've seen it. And testified to it, or witnessed to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. And then he goes on and says that we then have fellowship with one another in verse 5 and 6. Now I wonder whether you can see the significance of that. You and I only come into fellowship with the Father, or partnership, it's the, it's, the, it's the Greek word koinonia. We only come into partnership or fellowship with the Father 
when we come into fellowship with the apostles, with what they saw, heard, and touched. It is impossible for you to come into fellowship with God the Father independently of the apostolic word, with what they saw, heard, and touched. You can't do it. It's impossible. Whenever somebody tells you they're in relationship with God and they have bypassed the apostles, that is just mysticism. It's not real Christianity. You can only have fellowship with the Father if you have fellowship with the apostles, with what they saw, heard, and touched. And amazingly, when you have fellowship with the apostles, you are brought into fellowship with the Father, and then we become in fellowship with one another. In other words, it's impossible for us to have fellowship with one another if we won't have fellowship with the apostles. Which is why all kinds of nonsense gets taught about Christian unity. You cannot have Christian unity without the apostles. It's impossible. You have to have fellowship with what they saw, heard and touched so that you then have fellowship with the Father and then we have fellowship with one another. There is no other pathway to unity amongst us other than that. Now let me pause there. Do you want to ask a question at that point? I think that's quite rad. I think that's quite new for quite a lot of people to think in those kind of terms. But do you want to ask a question? Did that help answer the, your question, my friend? Okay. I don't want to put you on the spot, but yeah. Okay. Everyone happy? Say if you're not, it's fine. It's thought-provoking. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 think it's, I, I think it's quite surprising. Um, let's, let's give more on a detour. Let, let me try and pro- prove to you that this is not just one passage. Turn with me to John 17. J- Jesus, Jesus thinks like this. It's not me. Jesus, he's in the upper room, it's the night before he goes to the cross, and it's this great prayer that Jesus prays, and we're allowed to eavesdrop on Jesus praying to his Father. And by verse 20, he starts to pray for us. Amazing, Jesus prays for us. Isn't that amazing? Look at verse 20. My prayer is not for them. That's the disciples. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one. See what Jesus is saying? Jesus wants us as God's people to be united but we become united by believing in their, that's the apostles' message. Bypass the apostles and you cannot be united with each other. (coughs) Very striking. Because a lot of people will tell you that, uh, well, we ought to be united, that just means being nice to each other and it doesn't really matter what, and it doesn't really matter what you believe, actually. It does matter what you believe. 
preaching any other gospel that they said. Don't believe any other gospel. Absolutely. So I don't know where it is, but I know. I think Galatians would be a good place to go. Yeah? No, no, that's fine. No, no. no, but, you know, that's saying to me that that's the gospel. Yeah. is what we've got to follow and nothing else. Absolutely right. Because of the deception that comes in with. Exactly. I think that's exactly right. Um, and it's even, it's even bigger than that because I don't think you can have proper fellowship with the Father if you believe a different gospel to the one that they're speaking. And therefore, you can't be in unity with each other if you bypass their gospel. Yeah? Uh, well, I think I'd want to... I, I want to be as polite as I can be. But I think I'd want to point point out uh, to them that, well, let, let me come at, let, so it was such a good question. Let, let, let me try and c- come at it another way. Have you ever heard anyone say, I like to think of God as? Have you ever heard that kind of line? I like to think of God as. Um, my dear sister, who died a couple of years ago, not n- never a Christian, really anti-Christian, but, but said, I like to think of God as. And in about the last month of her life, I said to her, I said, Karen, I said, I'm really intrigued. Where do you get the information about the God you believe in? You say you're in friendship with God. Where do you get your information? It's a good question, isn't it? Where do you get your information about what God is like? And do you know what she said? This is absolutely no, no lie. She said... I make it up. I said, well, that's just, that's just fanciful. In fact, it's worse. It's idolatry. Because I don't think we're allowed to think about God in any other way than he has revealed himself to us. We are not free to think of him. Imagine me thinking, (laughs) there's Andy. I've known Andy a long time. Imagine I start making up information about him. Um, You see, did you know Andy's a murderer? Well, I've just made that up. But I like to believe it about him. I'm not free to make up information. That is just, we call that slander. I'm not free to make up information about him. I'll end up in court if I do. Yeah? Get that? I am not free to make up information about God. He has revealed himself and has done so through these apostles. Um, fair, fair, fair question. Um, we, we often hear stories of people who have not heard the gospel in the scriptures, but God somehow has revealed himself to them. Often we hear... Uh, 
Uh, and often it's, it's through something like a dream. The, 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 a dream. We, often people in Islamic countries, uh, uh, you hear that. I am not saying God cannot do whatever he wants to reveal himself uh, to people, but the normal way that he has chosen to do it is not by the miracle kind of route, otherwise it wouldn't be a miracle. Um, He's chosen to do it by us witnessing to what they witnessed. The Lord God can do whatever he wants. So... (laughs) Okay, so please, please, uh, 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 and we hear stories, and I'm not doubting them, uh, we hear stories, um, I, I have got a friend who um, is from uh, Iraq, and he said that God gave him a dream that told him to find a Christian and ask him what John 3.16 meant. And he found a Christian, and I said, well, I don't know what John 3.16 is, will you tell me? And the guy read it to him, and he became a Christian. Now, Medi is that is God can do whatever He wants, but the norm is not that God gives a million people around the world tomorrow a dream. The norm is you and I go to them with the gospel that He has revealed through the apostles. That that's the norm. But God can do whatever He wants to bring whoever He wants. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, God can do whatever he wants. But the norm is, is through what was witnessed by these apostles is then what we witnessed. Yeah. Ultimately, they'll, they'll, they'll end up in fellowship with believers through the apostles. That's, that, 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 that's what will happen in the end. The way God chooses to do it, I'm going to say, he can do whatever he likes. Yeah? Should we, should we make a little bit of headway next? We've, uh, we've come to chapter 2. And Acts chapter 2 is uh, one of the most breathtaking moments in human history. The Old Testament has been looking forward to it. And and begins the next real big section of Acts. I've I've given you where uh, Acts um, sections uh, come and go at the bottom of uh, side one of the handout. Um, But we're going to think about thematically how the gospel is going to get to the ends of the earth. And we're going to do that by 10 past 10, and then we'll have the break. Okay? 
The Spirit comes. The believers are all in uh, Jerusalem. They're gathered uh, together, and uh, the Spirit comes on each of them. Now, Christians have been divided about this kind of stuff for ages. My hunch is that what happens is that they then speak the languages of all the people that are gathered in Jerusalem so that they can all hear the gospel in their own language. Whatever else we might think about the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 12, so I think that's what's happening here at Pentecost, is that everybody who is gathered from all those nations in verses 9 through to uh, 11, they're all gathered there in Jerusalem, and they hear the gospel in their own tongue. What Peter then explains is that this is the fulfilment of Joel chapter 2. He very cleverly quotes from Joel chapter 2 and verse 28, breaks off the quote in the middle of Joel chapter 2 and verse 32, where Joel says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Joel goes on and says, and salvation will come to you in Jerusalem. And that is what Peter then explains in the sermon. And the sermon, which is actually the largest bit of the day of Pentecost, interesting, isn't it? Because we often think of the spirit coming and all that's going on. But actually, when Luke records it, most of the space is given to a sermon. And what's the sermon all about? The sermon is all about God. It's actually all about what God did to Jesus. Uh, Look through the sermon with me, you'll see. Verse 22, it's what God did among you through him. Verse 24, God raised him. God brings what he has promised. Verse 32, God raised him. God declares him, exalts him, and declares him to be Lord and Christ. And when those who've clearly been responsible for his death understand that killing Jesus could not stop God declaring him to be Lord and Christ, they say, what shall we do? And Peter replies, repent and be baptised, every one of you. And notice 3,000 are added to their number that day. What a day. And just look at the little description of the church in verse 42 through to the end. It's a lovely picture of church, isn't it? Gathering together around the apostles, praying together, eating in each other's homes. A lovely picture. That's not the only picture, though, because you get another miracle comes on uh, chapter 3. This time of a man who's been paralysed and... uh, His feet are restored to him. And what does that do? Miracle at Pentecost, wonderful fellowship. Miracle, and what does that do? Do you see chapter four? Arouses opposition. Sometimes people say, wouldn't it be lovely to be like it was in the early church? Well, Yes and no. (laughs) Yes, chapter 2 ends with a lovely description of church. I'd love my church that I go to. I'd love that to be church. 
But chapter 4, well, that's what it's like too. And just go around the world. Well, what was it we were told uh, last um, Sunday? Our brothers and sisters blown to pieces in Sri Lanka. That's what it's like. A Christian uh, lady, a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend in Nigeria, that last Sunday was shot. Wasn't even reported. That's what it's like. Uh, The early church knew, understood that. But what do they do? What do you do when you're persecuted? Well, Peter, chapter 4, verse 8, is filled with the Holy Spirit and says, well, what do you think we should do? Salvation is found in no one else. And so what do they do? They come out and they pray. And they pray, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And I think all of that is ultimately so that they will speak boldly of the Lord Jesus, which is what they do. What's life like in Jerusalem? Well, a lovely fellowship is created by the Spirit. I hope that's true in your church. But opposition is aroused. Notice, from religious people. What happens as a result? Well, at the end of chapter 4, it's a lovely description again of the church. Just look at verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Wouldn't you think that'd be great at church? No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. They shared with everyone everything they had. Wouldn't that be lovely? With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Hooray! There was no needy person among them. Hooray! From time to time, those who owned lands or or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, distributed it to everyone or anyone who had need. And then you get the lovely example, this man who was nicknamed Son of Encouragement, Barnabas, who does exactly that. Hooray! That's the church you want to be part of, isn't it? And yet what happens next? With, with shocking language that's used to echo what uh, Barnabas has done with the idea of selling and putting money at the apostles' feet. This couple, Ananias and Sapphira, well, I think they want the kudos without the cost. I think they want, they, they want to be thought well of, a bit like Barnabas clearly was. Uh, but they've kept part of the money in the back pocket, yeah, kind of tucked away. And notice that they are not filled with the Spirit, verse 3. Can you see what it says? They're filled with Satan. Shocking language. And Ananias, well, he lies and he dies. And his wife is given an opportunity to repent. And she also lies. What's life in your local church like? It's both, isn't it? 
you'll have people doing the most generous things. And it's wonderful. But you and I, well, because it's in my heart too, you and I know that we can also lie to each other. It might not be quite like this, but we can deceive each other, can't we? See, I want you to think well of me. So I want you to think I'm a great person. So I pretend. What's life like in Jerusalem? Well, read the second half of chapter 5. It's, it's opposition again. And I wonder whether you notice now the satanic pincer movement of attack at the local church in Jerusalem. It's outside and it's inside. And that's how it is. It may be that in our country we don't know so much of the outside opposition, we know of the internal difficulties. In, in Nigeria and Sri Lanka, it may be they know more of the external opposition, but the, the satanic pincer movement, you'll find it in the Old Testament too. God's people are opposed from outside and from inside. That's how it is. That's what life's like in the local church. Guess what? Chapter 6. What's the tension facing the local church? It's, it's not outside now, it's inside again. It's about whether people are actually being cared for. You see, there's a dispute. In those days, the number of disciples was increasing. Hooray! The Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. So that's... Uh, Jewish by birth Jews and people who are not Jewish by birth and they're falling out because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. People were giving generously, chapter 4, so that people need not be in need but it's not working out completely well. The twelve gathered and they decide it would not be right for them to do the work of distributing amongst the widows. No, they must give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, and so they set apart these seven. And notice the kind of people they set apart for just serving at tables. It's quite surprising, isn't it, verse 5? They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and then those other six just to do the kind of coffee rota. It's quite striking. And notice one of the little summaries in the book of Acts, though the word of God spread. I wonder if you can see where we're going. We're going back and forward. External opposition, internal tension. External opposition, internal tension. Guess where we go next? The end of chapter 6 and beginning of chapter and through chapter 7. External again. It's back and forth and back and forth. And we'll pause at the end of chapter 7 when Stephen, one of those seven who was a table servant and who preaches the longest sermon in the book of Acts, it's a brilliant Bible overview of the Old Testament that he preaches, well worth reading, all of which comes to the summary that God does not live in buildings... That's going to be really important for after coffee. God does not live in buildings. Because if God lives in a building in Jerusalem, the gospel's never going to go to the end of the world. 
Because if you, got, if you only can find God in a building in Jerusalem, the gospel's not going to get much further than commuting distance. God does not live in buildings made by men, and you have always rejected God, is what Stephen says, and so they stone him. The gospel in Jerusalem. And guess what happens? Chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Ah. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. And now they go to Judea and Samaria. In chapter 8, verse 4, what do they do when they go? Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Really important to understand two things. First, God is in complete control of getting the gospel where he wants it to go. He's told you in chapter 1, verse 8, it's to go Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Well, at the end of chapter 7, it's not gone beyond Jerusalem. But chapter 8, verse 1, it does. And what does God use to get it going where he wants it? Opposition to the gospel. But it doesn't stop God. God is so big that he can even use things that are opposed to him to bring about what he's always said he wanted to happen. Gosh, you've got to be big to do that. And notice who he uses. Because do you see chapter 8, verse 1? Where do the apostles stay? Now, they've just been set apart in chapter 6. They've just been set apart as the professionals. To give themselves to the ministry of prayer and the word. They're the pros and they stay in Jerusalem. And everyone else gets scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And we'll see after coffee, they actually get scattered even beyond that. They get scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And what do they do? They preach the word wherever they went. Who actually does God use to bring about the gospel moving? It's not the professionals. It's just the ordinary, bog-standard believers. Isn't that amazing? It's just you, people like you and me. So it's not the Andy Brownleys. <laughs> we love the professionals. But who does he actually use in the book of Acts? It's all of us. Well, we've got the gospel out. From Jerusalem. We better get it to the ends of the earth before the next break. <laughs> We've got to Acts chapter 8. We're going to rush through the rest of Acts very, very speedily, I hope. Let me say that when the church in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 gets scattered, I wonder whether you'd now turn to Acts chapter 11 so that you can see where it's scattered to. Acts chapter 11 and verse 19. And you can see that the way Luke writes, he deliberately puts this pit bit where he does. So can you see chapter 11, verse 19? Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen. So can you see that actually verse 19 lives back at chapter 8? Does that make sense? 
But Luke puts it here because he tells us that those who are scattered actually don't just go to Judea and Samaria, they actually go as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message uh, only to Jews. But some, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks, also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, the question to ask is, why does Luke put that bit here and not back at chapter 8, which is where it historically belongs? And the answer is because he wants you to understand something that happens in chapter 9 and chapters 10 and the beginning of chapter 11. And what he wants you to understand is that the gospel is not just for Jews. And he shows you that by telling you first not just about the gospel going to Judea and Samaria in chapter 8, but about it coming to a chap called Saul of Tarsus in chapter 9. Now, you've met Saul at the end of chapter 7. He was there giving approval to the death of Stephen. He is a murderous man. Saul, verse, chapter 9, verse 1, carrying out, breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And guess what happens? But you know, God gets him. But God gets Saul, who becomes obviously Paul, because Paul is going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He's going to be the man whom God is principally going to use in the rest of the book of Acts to get the gospel to the Gentiles. Then what happens in chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11 is that the early church needs to understand theologically that the gospel is not just for Jews. Now what Luke has been doing is putting all the pieces in place so that we get it. So first, chapter 7, God does not live in buildings. You believe that, don't you? You don't think that God lives in Jerusalem more than Manchester, do you? No? Do you think that God lives in a church building more than he lives in the local park? No. Do you think that if it was warm enough and dry enough tomorrow, we could meet in the park and have our Sunday meeting? And we don't need to be in a religious building. You all agree with that? You don't think like... I'm from the Church of England. Now, in, in the Church of England, there are people who think that God lives at the front of the building more than anywhere else in the building. <laughs> Have you heard of anything more stupid than that? Let me tell you, this is absolutely true. When my eldest, who's now in his 20s and married, but when he was about four, I took him to Chester Cathedral. I like Chester Cathedral, I think it's a really nice piece of architecture, but I don't think it's special in terms of where God lives. But they in Chester Cathedral think he does. At the front of Chester Cathedral there was a table, which they call an altar, which is a silly name for it, because Cranmer, when he brought about the uh, Reformation in England, decided that you should never call a thing in a church an altar because altars are for sacrifices and we use a table for a meal. Anyway, there was a table at the front of the church, but it was roped off. On the table were two candles lit. And so I said to Jonathan, I said, 
Look, why don't you nip under the rope and go and blow the candles out? <laughs> what are candles for nowadays? They are for blowing, for kids to blow out, aren't they? We don't need them for light. We don't need them for heat. What are candles for? Candles are for kids to blow out. That's what candles exist for. So I said, why don't you nip under the rope and go and, go and, go and blow the candle out? I seriously told him to do that. So he nipped under the rope. Well, as soon as he got under the rope, a man wearing a big black dress kind of arrived, and he was as red as could be. He said, what is that child doing? I said, he's going to blow the candles out. He said, he can't do that. I said, why not? He said, do you see the red box on the table? I said, yes. He said, that is the Lord Jesus. He said, that is where Jesus lives. I said, really? (laughs) I said, how extraordinary. And I said to him, look, mate, you can't have it both ways. If that really is where Jesus is, Jesus said, let the little children come to me. (laughs) And if it's not where Jesus is, then there's no problem blowing the candles out. Well, I thought he was going to explode. I tried, in my kind of gentle way, then to engage him in some conversation, to ask him, do you really think Jesus lives at the front of this building? Do you think that's where God is? And, you know, he really did believe it. And I said to him, do you not understand that in Acts chapter 7, Stephen has made the whole point, illustrating all through the Old Testament, that God is where his people are, And he does not live in houses built by men. If you don't get that theologically, you will never understand that the gospel is for the whole world. You see, if you've got to go to Jerusalem to meet God, then the gospel can't go to the nations. But if you believe God is where his people are, then wherever his people go, God is there. And people can encounter the living God when they encounter his people, because that's where he is. So the first theological piece that Luke puts in is, Luke, is in Acts chapter 7. God does not live in buildings. Second, God is for the Gentiles. He's created, he raised up an apostle for the Gentiles. And then theologically what happens in Acts chapter 10. Well, we meet a man called Cornelius. In chapter 10, verse 1, Luke lays it on with a trowel to tell you that he is a Gentile. But, but he is apparently seeking after God. And you know the great thing about God? Is he's not playing hide and seek. And so the Old Testament Psalm 14 is crystal clear. If anyone seeks him, guess what? You'll find him. The trouble is most people aren't seeking him. But if you seek him, you'll find Cornelius is seeking. And so what does God do? Exactly as the lady earlier said. What does God do? Well, answers him. Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, now what have you got to do? Now, God could have done this just in a dream straight away, couldn't he? But what does he do? Actually, he does the normal thing and says, 
go and find the apostolic word. So, send some people to go to, um, to Simon, who's also called Peter, verse 5. Uh, you can't miss him. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Yeah, it's a kind of... It's where Blunt got his line, the semi by the sea or something. Um, go to Cornelius. Cornelius, go to Simon's house. What's Simon doing? Just so happens, Simon, that very noon, the following day, is on the roof. I assume it was flat. It's lunchtime. He's praying. And God gives him a dream, a vision. And the vision is of a sheet lowered from heaven, and on the sheet are all kinds of four-footed animals and reptiles and birds of the air. It's an echo of Genesis chapter uh, 1. And then he's told, kill and eat. Those three words are perhaps the most important three words in your Christian life. Because kill and eat has transformed the whole of human history. Kill and eat. What's significant about it? Well, Peter says, surely not. You see, I've read, I've read Leviticus. I know the food laws in Leviticus 11, Peter's saying. Surely not. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. I've never had a bacon sandwich. I've never had sweet and sour pork balls. And he, he meant it. He genuinely would have never, ever eaten anything impure. And then notice what God says. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. In other words, that phrase, kill and eat, means you can now eat any food. And the theological significance of that is that when Cornelius' servants arrive and say to Peter come back to Cornelius' his house, Peter can now say, I'll come. Whereas before, he would have never gone to a Gentile's house because he'd have never been able to eat in a Gentile's house. Peter has now understood that that little phrase, kill and eat, means I can go to a Gentile's house. And so Peter can explain it when he gets there. In verse 27, talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people and he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me, and here's this striking phrase, God has shown me that I should not call any, now you're expecting it to say animal. I should not call any man impure or unclean. I've now understood that Jew and Gentile are alike. And so I raised no objection. Now, what is it you wanted me to come for? And Cornelius says, well, I wouldn't mind you explaining the gospel to me, actually. <laughs> so Peter does with a rerun of Pentecost sermon. It's a slightly shorter in note form, but it's a rerun of Pentecost, and notice another Pentecost takes place. In other words, the Gentiles experience the Spirit in the same way that the Jews do in Acts chapter 2. Not because that's the way all of us will always experience the Spirit, 
I suspect none of us have had the spirit come down like doves and flames of fire. God can do what he wants. But it happens to the Jews in Acts chapter 2 and it happens to Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10 to show you that there is absolutely no superiority amongst Jewish believers and Gentile believers. They are equal in terms of God's gift of the Spirit. Now that ought to, friends, that ought to make you want to shout out, hooray! Yeah! But... That, that, that Peter is no more superior to Cornelius in terms of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Or you, or me. Hooray! Now, at the beginning of Acts chapter 11, the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea, they heard what happened. And they're outraged. What is Peter doing? He's completely flipped. He's been to Cornelius' house. Are you saying he's had a bacon sandwich there? Is that what's gone on? Uh, more. The spirits come on them like, like it came on us. What is going on? And so Peter explains what happened. And listen to how Peter concludes Verse 15 of chapter 11. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he came on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? It's one of the big things the early church had to understand. The gospel is for Gentiles, for non-Jews. And Luke's put all the pieces in together so that we get it. Now, friends, if I was applying this to you as a congregation on a Sunday, it's unlikely any of us are, to th- are likely to think that the gospel is only for Jews. Because we're all Gentiles pretty well, yeah? So I put it this way. Do you think the gospel is only for people like us? Now, intellectually, you know that's the case. Yes? But that was the problem going on in the first century. You see, the first century church, the early church, Peter, up to this point had thought the gospel is only for people like us, for Jews. But they had to learn that the gospel is for Gentiles. The gospel is for all nations. It's for the whole world. And that's why then you can be told about a lovely church in Antioch. A Gentile church. The first Gentile church. And it's a wonderful story because the early church has now got it. The gospel truly is for Gentiles. Notice who their first church pastors are. Acts chapter 11 and verse 25. Barnabas, the chap who sold the field. And Saul, who was the murderer. And they're their first church pastors. And they stay there for some period. 
Well, then you go back to chapter 12 and you learn about the church in, um, in Jerusalem again, or the um, unbelief in Jerusalem and Herod and his opposition. It's a wonderful story. We haven't got time to deal with it. It's a lovely story. Yeah, Peter's been put in prison. The Lord miraculously releases him from prison. The church is gathering together. They're praying for Peter and there's Peter at the door and Rhoda, the slave girl, goes to the door and... Um, and it's Peter, and she goes in and says, Peter's at the door, and they say, it can't be, we're praying for him, he's in jail, it must be his angel. And it's, it's wonderfully humorously told, but alongside that, the awful judgment that comes on Herod, who's opposed to the gospel. But nonetheless, summary verse that comes up those number of times on the sheet, chapter 12, verse 24, the word of God continued to increase and spread. The gospel is now for the world. So what happens? the gospel starts to go to the world. Now you've understood theologically it is for all nations. What can happen? Well, chapter 13 and verse 1. In the church Antioch, that's where Paul and Barnabas have been, there were prophets and teachers, and we're told five of them by name. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Maon, who'd been uh, brought up with uh, Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they're worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me. And it's very surprising because what, what happens? Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul. They're two church pastors. 40% of the leadership team are now going to be sent on a missionary journey. Uh, whenever I talk to church pastors about planting churches, they always tell me, this is obviously not true of CCM, but they nearly always tell me, oh, I don't think it's the right time for us to plant at the moment. And, um, and, and well, we couldn't give away, give away 40% of our leadership team for a church plant. No, can't do that. Well, that's what the Spirit says here. And I think that's why we're given the five names, so that we actually get it. 40% of the leadership team of this church in Antioch are now about to go. Paul and Barnabas, and they go on what we often call the first missionary uh, journey, and they go uh, to Cyprus, they go to Pisidian Antioch, that's a different Antioch to the Antioch they've uh, come from, where you get the uh, second longest sermon in the book of uh, Acts, which is brilliant because it explains to you how the Old Testament all was teaching about the resurrection. You then come to Iconium and then to Lystra and Derby, and then they go back to Antioch and at the end of chapter 14, they show at the uh, prayer meeting the PowerPoint of the first missionary journey, I suspect. The thing to notice in the first missionary journey is that you get sermons in Pisidian Antioch to a Jewish congregation where it's all started in the Old Testament. And then you get a sermon in Lystra to a Gentile congregation where it all starts at creation. When we come to Athens in chapter 17, another Gentile congregation, it's interesting to learn in the book of Acts where you start. You see, where people know the Old Testament, Paul's very happy to start with the Old Testament. But when you come to Lystra and then Athens, where people know nothing of the Old Testament, that's not where Paul starts. It's the same gospel 
we always end up with Jesus being Lord and repent and believe. It's always the same end, but where you start is not always the same. Because it depends on where people are coming from, where you start. That's just worth throwing out. But before we break for coffee again, it's really important that we come to the next big crisis that comes in the book of Acts. And it comes in Acts chapter 15. We've seen that the gospel is for people not like us. It is for, the Jews had to understand, for Gentiles. But now a massive issue threatens the very existence of the gospel going to the world. It's uh, picked up in, this is uh, picked up in the book of Galatians, uh, big time, and is spent more time there explaining what's going on. But we can pick it up at Acts 15. Paul is back in Antioch, end of the first missionary journey, and some men come from Judea, that's kind of Jerusalem, to Antioch, and were teaching the brothers Unless you were circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now that is an issue that must be fought tooth and nail for two reasons. First, because it is not the gospel. You do not have to be circumcised to be saved. That is a gospel plus. It's saying we have to do something in order to be saved. And we don't. It's not the gospel. But secondly, if you have to obey all the Old Testament law, a bit like if you had to go to the temple, if you've got to obey all the Old Testament law, the gospel can never get beyond commuting distance because you've got to go to Jerusalem when you're a baby, as Jesus did. You've got to go to Jerusalem when you're 12, as Jesus did. So the gospel could never get to Manchester if you've got to go to Jerusalem. It can't. And so this issue must be dealt with. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Indeed, Galatians tells us that it brought Peter and Paul into dispute. Peter was wobbling on this issue. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way. And they travel through Phoenicia and Samaria and they speak wherever they go. And they come to Jerusalem. They're welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they had reported everything God had done through them. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. That must be dealt with. If I was applying it to you on a Sunday morning, I'd be saying something like this. Do you believe that the gospel is for people not like you? Do you believe that the gospel is for people not like you and they don't need to become like you? That's what's going on here. The uh, believers there in verse 5 in Jerusalem, they're saying, oh, the gospel can go to Gentiles, that's fine. But they've now got to become Jews. They've got to obey all the law. They've got to become like us. Do you believe that the gospel is for people not like you? And do you believe that they don't need to become like you? 
very often we give off all the kind of, well, we wouldn't say it crudely and verbally, would we? But we give off all the impression that, yes, the gospel is for people not like us, but when they come to church, they've got to become like us. They don't. That's what's going on. Verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, and now Peter's back on side, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips. That's back in Acts chapter 10, the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Why now do we try to test God by putting on the necks of those disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe, here's the gospel, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Hooray, Peter's got it. And Paul and Barnabas, they stand up and they say what's been going on on their missionary journey in verses 12 to uh, um, 15. And then James gets up and quotes from Amos chapter 9 where he understands that the Old Testament always said it was for Gentiles. Ah, they've got it. They've got it. And so what do they do? They just say, in verse 19 to 21, what's often called the Jerusalem quadrilateral, they say, let's just not make it harder for Jews. Let's not make it harder for Gentiles. Let's not make it harder for Jews. Let's not make it harder for people to come to faith by telling them they've got to do something. And then the great thing that happens then at the end of the chapter is that you then get a disagreement that doesn't need to be sorted. When there's a disagreement about what the gospel is, that had to be sorted. There's a disagreement now between Paul and Barnabas about uh, John Mark and about whether they should take him on the next missionary journey or not. A difference in mission strategy. And they part company and go their different ways. It didn't need to be sorted. There are some disagreements on the gospel that must, must be fought for. But there are some disagreements on, kind of, I know, mission strategy or personnel that don't need to be fought over, don't need to be resolved, and you can go your separate ways. And then you get the beginning of chapter 16. If you know the book of Acts, you think it's wonderful. Um, when, when the issue about circumcision was, do you need to be circumcised in order to be saved? That must get sorted. And now, the beginning of chapter 16, Paul's going to take Timothy on a missionary journey, and so Paul has Timothy circumcised. We're not told what Timothy thought about that. (laughs) Because Paul doesn't want to make it more difficult for Jews to hear the gospel. And Jews wouldn't have heard the gospel... Unbelieving Jews would not have heard the gospel from an uncircumcised man. So what does Paul do? Now it's not an issue. He has Timothy circumcised. And Paul has the vision. Here we'll stop with the book of uh, Acts. and I'll just tell you then what happens in the last little uh, bit of it. 
What happens then is Paul goes to Philippi. And the rest of chapter 16, from verse 11 through to the end of the chapter, is Paul in Philippi. And Luke records for you three events in Philippi, and they are fascinating. First, Lydia. She's a Jewess. There's no synagogue in Philippi, so she's meeting by the river on the Sabbath. And and she becomes Christian. Then you get a, a slave girl. She's not Jewess, she's demonic. And Paul casts the demon out of her. And then you get a Roman, a Roman jailer. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas have been in prison and um, uh, amazingly, uh, God again rescues them from prison and the Roman jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And he does. And then you've got the, the meeting at church in Lydia's house. And I wonder whether you can see what you've got. You've got a woman. You've got a slave. And you've got a Gentile. Did you know that every day a Jewish male prayed and thanked God that he was neither a woman, a slave, or a Gentile? When you know that in Galatians 3 and verse 26, Paul says that in Christ there is neither male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. Can you see what Luke's done in Acts chapter 16? He's given you the three individuals that form the part of the little church there in Philippi. And he's told you about a woman. He's told you about a slave. And he's told you about a Gentile. Because now the gospel truly is free for all. And so it can. It moves. Three things perhaps just to say from uh, the rest of the book. It moves first principally around big cities. It's interesting that Paul goes to Athens and then Corinth and then Ephesus. Big cities. When you read the book of Revelation, are you doing a session on Revelation at some later? When, When you read the book of Revelation, you'll read that the book is written to seven churches in Asia, most of which Paul had never been to, but churches were set up there. And other places like Colossae. Paul had never been to Colossae. But the church was set up there by a chap called Epaphras, who probably got converted in Ephesus. You see, Paul went to the big cities, saw people converted, and they then move out and take the gospel. Big cities. Second thing to notice, Paul can leave them. In Acts uh, chapter Uh, 20, Paul uh, meets with the elders of the church in Ephesus and tells them he's never going to go back there. He's finished in Asia. Paul puts it in uh, Romans 15. He says, I've done the job. There is, uh, the gospel's been preached all over what was then called Asia. Job done. So Paul can say, I'm going. And he goes, he goes up to Jerusalem to take a gift to the church there and but ends up in Rome, and from there he's planning to go to Spain. Job done. 
but he can leave them. And what does he leave them with? He reminds them of what he did while he was there. Just preach the gospel. Keep teaching them. Keep loving them. Keep caring for them. And then the third thing, the last thing to notice, is that the gospel continues to go and ends up in Rome with God utterly sovereign over the suffering of Paul. Now, we haven't got any time to do it, but uh, Paul goes to Jerusalem. He's arrested in Jerusalem. There's a threat on his life. And we're then told of five trials that Paul experiences in the rest of the book of Acts. And they are exactly the same five trials that Jesus experiences in the Gospels. Not to say that that's what every Christian faces, but just to, I think, illustrate that what Paul goes through is what Jesus goes through. That suffering is normal but does not stop what God wants to bring about. What was God's plan? Gospel going to the ends of the earth. Five trials, and where does Paul end up at the end of the book of Acts? Preaching the gospel in Rome. You see, God is so big that even opposition to his people does not thwart his purposes and plans. You've got to be a big God to pull that one off. And that's the God we've got. Now, do you want to ask a question? Then we're going to, I'm going to say a little bit about epistles and then we're going to think about the doctrine of Christ. Yeah. Bro, go on. I think that... Um, we assume that the tree is not dry while we have the opportunity to preach the gospel. So, if you can preach the gospel today, preach the gospel. I, th- I, I, I think that's what I'd say. While the opportunities are there, give it a go. Um, and we have immense opportunities still in this country, so give it a go. In all the other parts of Manchester that still need to be reached. Um, Okay, let's have 10 minutes off and then come back together. Andy can cut this out of the um, recording if he wants to, but one or two people have asked uh, the question, what was the significance of circumcision in the Old Testament? Uh, Something that clearly as Christian people we do not uh, need to do. That's the whole fight at Acts chapter uh, 15. So what was going on when God instituted circumcision uh, in the promise that he made to Abraham back in uh, Genesis uh, 17. And without being uh, crude, the point of circumcision is that uh, a visual aid took place to the males in the family line of Abraham that was a demonstration of what ought to happen to humanity. A human ought to be cut off from God forever because of sin. And so God gave Abraham a visual aid that something is cut off from him so that he always understood that it should have been him that was cut off from God. And the language is used explicitly in Genesis 17 so that if the male in Abraham's family was not circumcised, so if they did not have part of them cut off, they would be cut off from God 
forever. Does that make sense? So it's, it's, it's um, an Old Testament visual aid for Abraham's uh, family, but when it comes to the gospel going to the world, all of those laws of the Old Testament are now fulfilled um, in Christ. And we don't need them, and we don't need to obey them, and uh, if we do, then we end up going back to Old Testament. Somebody else asked at coffee time about uh, the Church of England, of which I'm in all, often embarrassed about. Um, but what's often happening is a wanting to go back to Old Testament religion. So special buildings and special people wearing special clothes, observing it on a special day, is all wanting to go back to a religion where we do things. And in Christ, it's all been done. So we don't need, we don't need, and the best way I've got of illustrating it, and it doesn't work in this room, you won't be able to see it, on the floor there is my shadow. And that shadow is my shadow. It's not anyone else's shadow, it's mine. But the shadow is not me. This is me. But it's my shadow. In the Old Testament, this is, uh, Paul uses this language, uh, the writer of Hebrews does it as well, uh, uses the language of shadow to describe the Old Testament. Shadow. It's a shadow of the reality which is Jesus. When you've got the reality which is Jesus, you do not need to keep looking at the shadow other than looking at the shadow will help you understand what Jesus looks like. So that shadow on the ground there will give you some clue as to what I look like, but it is not me. And the New Testament's crystal clear, don't go back to the shadows once you've seen the reality has come. That makes sense? Hope so. We're living in the overlap. We've thought about Acts in the overlap, and now we just need to think about these uh, letters that we've got. In fact, you could argue that Acts is a letter, and I think you could argue that Revelation's a letter. Who writes the letters? Well, most of them are written by Paul. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, we don't know. The old authorised version heads it, the, writer of the letter of Hebrews by Paul, but nowhere in Hebrews is it said that it's Paul who writes it. And uh, if you do the Greek course next year, you'll discover that the Greek of Hebrews is very different to any of the other uh, styles of Hebrew, uh, Greek rather, in the New Testament. So unlikely. Uh, James, written by James. Peter seems to have written 1 and 2 Peter. John, three letters and Revelation. And Jude, the brother of Jesus, writes Jude. Um, how did they come to be part of the canon? Well, decided at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, but pretty well universally accepted uh, before that as, the, uh, as apostolic in origin. Who received them? Well churches, and some individuals, and some scatterings of Christians. What are they doing? What's their unique contribution in our life in the overlap? Well, they do three big things uh, for us. The first is they explain the past. 
Without the epistles, it would be very hard for us to understand Christ in all the scriptures. You may remember that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he spoke with two on the Emmaus Road and showed them what was said about him in all the scriptures. And I've often thought, wouldn't it have been nice to have been there walking along and having a little eavesdrop? You don't need to, because Christ in all the scriptures is explained to you in all the letters. They explain for you, for example, and these are just some examples, they explain for you first that the gospel is in accord with the Old Testament and not a contradiction. Do you know, a lot of Christians, I think, still think that um, God had a plan A in the Old Testament and it didn't work very well, so he came up with plan B, which was Jesus. Can I say that is absolutely not the case? God's plan has always been, we'll see this in a moment or two when we think about the doctrine of Christ, God's plan has always been the one and only plan. And so there's some references there that show you how in Romans, for example, Paul goes out of his way to show you that what is being written in the gospel and is spoken by the apostles in the gospel is what was always in the Old Testament. So, man being sinful, the Old Testament says that. Man needing a rescuer, the Old Testament says that. Uh, Salvation through faith alone, the Old Testament always said that. The Old Testament and New Testament are not in contradiction. And, um, well, have you got a page between the end of your Old Testament and beginning of New Testament? At the end of Malachi, I've got a blank page. And I'm now going to do something really radical. Watch this. Because there is no gap between the Old and the New Testament. You can't do that too often, otherwise you end up with no Malachi or or, or less of Matthew. But... Anyway, don't, don't, if it's not your Bible, do not rip that out. That's some, that's... <laughs> Second, which we've already mentioned, the gospel is the reality. So you're not listening anymore. <laughs> the gospel is the reality of which the Old Testament was only shadows. I'll say this again in a moment or two, but have you noticed how much of the Old Testament was written? Have you ever thought, why was the Old Testament written when the Old Testament was written? Have you ever thought, you know Adam and Eve muck up in Genesis 3? Have you ever thought, why didn't Jesus come in Genesis 4? Why do we need all of the Old Testament? And we need all of it. Paul says, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that Jesus came at just the right time. And what was the right time? At least at the end of all the Old Testament. Why? Because you need all of the Old Testament to understand Jesus. If you don't have the Old Testament, you will not understand Jesus. So whether it's uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 I've put down there, which is Paul saying, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You need all of the stuff about the Passover in Exodus 11, 12 and 13. You need all of that to help you understand what's going on when Jesus dies at the cross. 
Or when, when you come to uh, Paul saying that Jesus died as a sacrifice of atonement. You need to understand the whole stuff in the Old Testament about the Day of Atonement. To understand Jesus as God wants you to understand him. Third, the gospel is the end of where the Old Testament was leading. That's the point I was trying to make uh, just a moment or two ago. Once you've seen that the shadows lead to Jesus, you don't need to go back to Old Testament religion. Now, you and I are not tempted to go back to a physical temple, and we're not tempted to go back to sacrificing animals. We're not tempted to go back to an altar. We're not tempted to have priests who wear silly clothes. We're not tempted in those regards. And yet we are. Because fundamentally we want to go back to a religion where we do stuff. Uh, let me illustrate. I, I, I don't know your church scene at all, so if this is offensive, I really am not wanting to be. But I was speaking at a university Christian union a few weeks back. And um, there was a nice guy at, at the front, the worship leader, seemed a really sincere young guy, um, and he was playing his guitar, and he seemed a good guitarist. And hooray, I like good guitars. I've, I've got no problem at all, okay? But this is what he said, and, that's where, and this is where I had a problem. He said, I'm now going to lead us in three songs so that we can draw into the presence of God. Can you hear what's wrong with that? We're now going to sing three songs to draw us into the presence of God. That seems innocent, surely. Sounds innocent, doesn't it? What's so, anyone tell me what, what's so dangerous about that line? Why God isn't always present. Yes. And implies you do. What is it that brings you into the presence of God? <laughs> I love it, I love it. What is it? What is it that <laughs> Hooray. What is it that brings you into the presence of God, friends? Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Is that right? Is it is it the is it the death of the Son that leads us into the presence of the Father? Or do you think it's something we do? So we might not go back to an Old Testament priest or an Old Testament sacrifice, but we can easily be tempted to think it's something we do. And we, it's nothing we do. We just respond by faith through grace to what God has done in Christ. Yeah. Isn't praying something we do? Praying is not something that brings you into the presence of God. I'm confused. Um, Praying is something you do out of the fact that you trust God has brought you into the, uh, his presence through the work of his son. So prayer is the expression that you trust him and that you trust what the, the son has done to enable you to come to the father. Does that make sense? Um, uh, and, and, and again, don't mishear me at all at this, because I do it all the time. But, but even when we pray, do you think you... Who do you pray to when you pray as a Christian? They're hard questions. 
Which is a hard question. What's the normal answer? Who? What does Jesus say? When you pray, pray. Father, you pray to the Father through the Son, on, on the basis of the Son, in the Spirit, with the saints. So even, this is a, I will get somewhere later. But do you know, even, even, when you, even when you pray on your own, have you noticed that really, really weird line that comes in uh, Matthew 6? What do you do? You don't go and pray on a street corner. You go to your room and shut the door. And when you are on your own, what do you pray? Our Father, when you're on your own. Because you're never on your own when you pray. You're at least with the Spirit and the Son praying to the Father. Yeah? Anyway, there you go. <laughs> the epistles. Yeah, the epistles. Second, they, they explain the present to us. They explain the present. That is, they teach us how to live. They do that by telling you what to believe. They do it by correcting what you shouldn't believe. There's some verses there you can look up. And they teach you the positive of what you should believe. So when Paul writes in 2 Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God, he means, of course, in the first moment there, all Old Testament scripture, because the New Testament scriptures hadn't been completed. (laughs) But the Lord Jesus teaches that the Apostles will be led into all truth. And so what they write is the scriptures. And what do the scriptures do? Do you know, let's turn to it in um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 16 and 17. Perhaps the most famous of the verses in all of the epistles that explain what's going on. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is encouraging Timothy, it's right at the end of Paul's uh, ministry, Paul's about to die and he's encouraging Timothy to continue, keep going, to guard the gospel, to preserve the gospel, to continue to teach it, to be unashamed of it. And so he says in verse 14, we'll pick it up of 2 Timothy 3, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learnt it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. That is, the scriptures will make you wise to be saved. And here's what Paul says, all scripture, that's all, all Old Testament and all New Testament, all scripture is God-breathed. Paul's made up that word. The word God-breathed is literally two words, God, theos, and the word we would say exhaled. Sometimes it's translated as all scripture is inspired by God, but it literally translates all scripture has come out of, has been exhaled from God himself. And here's what it can do. It is useful. Look at the four verbs now. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. There are two theology words there and two moral words. Teaching, that is, it'll teach you the right thing to believe. It will rebuke, that is, it will tell you what not to believe. It will correct, 
it will tell you what not to do, and it will train you positively in the right thing to do, in righteousness. Isn't that kind of God to give us what we need? That's what the epistles do, along with all scripture, of course, but all scripture. And that means that, verse 17, say that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then thirdly, the epistles are brilliant at telling you about the future. And they're particularly encouraging you to wait well for Jesus' return. They tell you what the end will be like. Now, there's a, it should say 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, it tells you what the end will be like. What's going to happen? Well, everything you need to know about the future, you've already been told. So, so you, don't need to, you don't need to kind of look at horoscopes or any nonsense like that. Everything God wants you to know about the future, you know. It's all in the, it's all in the scriptures. So what's it going to be like? Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells you what's going to happen. Jesus is going to come. It is going to be an event that everyone will notice. Uh, Paul writes it. I'll, let me read you the verse in uh, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Paul writes it, it, it with um, real clarity. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left at the coming of the Lord Jesus, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. And notice, no one's going to miss it. There's a loud command with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. You can't miss it. I don't know how it's going to be possible for me to see it at the same time as someone in Australia sees it, but I reckon God's big enough to pull that one off, don't you? I don't, I don't know how it's going to be, but, but we'll, all, we'll all see it. And I think those three, the, the, um, the shout and the um, uh, voice of the archangel and the trumpet call, those three audible things, well, I think that's for my wife's sake. Because she can sleep as an Olympic sport. <laughs> in fact, when I came back from that university not so long, about, long ago up in Durham, I came back and um, it was about two o'clock in the morning when I got home. And it's really embarrassing when you get home and you put your key in the front door. And we've got one of those front doors. If someone's left the key on the inside, you can't turn it from the outside. What do you do when you're stuck outside, the front door's locked and you can't get in? You ring the doorbell. It's reluctant, but ding dong, ding dong. Nothing happened. What do you do then? Got my mobile phone in my pocket. We've got a phone by the bed. Sadly. I can hear it ringing inside from outside. Ring, 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 ring. It rang for 20 times and then the answer phone automatically cut in. Would you like to leave a message? Not particularly. <laughs> what do you then do? You climb over the back fence into our back garden where in the flower pot just by the back door is our spare key. It was raining. I was wet. I opened the back door. I went upstairs. I've hidden the back door key now so that you don't know where it is. Um, <laughs> and I went upstairs 
and walked into the bedroom and Joe suddenly sat up and said, oh, you're home then. <laughs> no one is going to miss this occasion. And those who have already died in Christ will be raised. So that aunt whose funeral I'm going to on Thursday, she'll be raised. And those who are alive, maybe that'll be us, who knows. We'll be joined together with them and we'll be together with the Lord forever and ever and ever. And that is wonderful. I'm ready. 2 Thessalonians 1 tells us what will happen to those who don't believe. I'll leave you, to, leave you to read that. It's horrific. They tell us, as we saw from 2 Peter, they tell us why the delay has gone on for so long. And they exhort us, don't give up. However tough it is, and it will be tough for some of us. It really will be tough. Don't give up. It'll be worth the wait. Do you want to ask a quick question, or should we go straight on to think about the... Sorry, can I... Yes. Yes. Oh, loads of, loads of them. Uh, not all of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I haven't quite got what... No, sorry. I can't explain myself properly. Oh, it's, it's probably me, so don't worry. I mean, a lot of Thessalonians and Revelation and yeah, yeah. are actually in the Old Testament prophets, aren't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. Daniel, so it's a complete foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah. The Old Testament, yep. not the New Testament. Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah, I've got that, yep. The best, way to, the best way to answer it is to give you an illustration. Okay, flip to Isaiah chapter 9 and I'll give you an illustration of, of what's going on in the Old Testament and, 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 and I hope this will help. Isaiah 9, you might have had it read at the carol service sometime. Isaiah writing here some 740 years before Jesus, okay, so a long time before, before Jesus. And uh, he says, verse 1, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in, the distra in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honour Galilee of the Gentiles. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Now, Isaiah's looking forward, and do you think that prophecy, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, do you think that has been fulfilled? Well, the answer is yes, because Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, says that when Jesus goes preaching in Galilee, it was to fulfill what Isaiah the prophet had said, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Okay? Now look down at verse 6. For to us a son is given, a child is born. Has that been fulfilled? 
Has the child been born? Yes. Everyone agree? Now, look at verse 7 in the middle. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and holding it with justice and righteousness from this time on and forever. Has that yet finally been fulfilled? I don't think so. In other words, when you read a prophet like Isaiah, it's a bit like going on a walk in the Lake District. When you go on a walk in the Lake District, you often see that there's a, a, a hill or two hills in the distance. And when you get nearer to the first hill, you discover that the second hill is actually further away than you thought. They're on a different plane. And when you read the Old Testament, one of the things you uh, end up doing is reading and discovering that some of the stuff in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. Some of it's being fulfilled even now in our era, as we were thinking about, and some of it's still to be fulfilled at the, at the end when Jesus returns. And you have to keep reading and asking, which has been fulfilled, which is being fulfilled, and which will be fulfilled? 